Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella. I am super excited to bring on Luis Carrera. Luis, what's going on today, man? Hey, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, pretty good just uh, running errands and uh, getting some properties ready to rent. Cool. And you are in the Raleigh-Durham area, right? Yeah, that's correct. So for my local wholesale business and flipping, it's in the Raleigh-Durham market. And for everything else is nationally. Well, southeast, northeast. Okay. Good deal. How long have you been in Raleigh for? Did you grow up there or? No, I grew up in um, Jersey, New Jersey, okay. Newark, and then uh, Harrison. And uh, via, well, I was born in Spain and I immigrated to that area when I was a kid. Okay. And when did you head over to North Carolina? 2015. Okay. Perfect. So when did you start in real estate? Tell us about kind of your beginning days of getting into the real estate investing world. Oh, certainly. So I started in real estate, I guess, in 2008, but as a hobby. Mm -hmm. And then mainly in 2010, I got very serious in it. And I started with lease options because I felt that was the easiest uh, window or easiest opportunity to get into the real estate. But I felt uh, in the end, it was actually a lot of mistakes and failure from that um, just because I over estimated a few things and underestimated a lot of other things. So then I kind of let that go and fell into wholesaling, basically through um, Sean Terry's Flip to Freedom course and podcast. I don't know if you heard of him. Yep. Yep. He's he's one of the, one of the big guru guys, right? So um, he seems like he's everywhere. So you were um, 2008, you kind of started doing it as a hobby. 2010, you started to get serious what market were you in in 2010? Well, I was in North Jersey. So okay. it was basically all the counties north of, uh, let's just call it the Raritan River. Mm-hmm. So New Brunswick and up. And they involved counties like Essex, which had Newark, Newark, mm-hmm. New Jersey, which was a big market. Uh, Patterson, Elizabeth, those markets that had a lot of rentals, basically. And the investors were happy to go into them. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how the lease options would work back then. Oh, lease options. I mean, it was a little easier to get lease options back then just because the economy was in um, shambles Mm -hmm. uh, due to the recession. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them were under, um, basically they couldn't sell their property. If not, it would have been a short sale situation. Mm -hmm. So the only option I had for them because I didn't have much money was lease options. And the lease options, obviously, I try to do market rent, but I never really made any money in there. Mm-hmm. So I had to let it go, unfortunately. Okay. So how did, tell us the numbers on, you know, one of those lease options back then. Like, what were you putting the property under contract at? And what were the terms? And then what were you planning to do as far as the rentals and all that good stuff? Certainly. So most of it, I mean, in New Jersey, property values are pretty high. So in these areas, they were pretty good areas because based on lease options, it's better to target nicer areas than worse. 
Mm-hmm. So these properties were under contract anywhere from 300 to 600 K. Mm-hmm. And the, let's just call it the lease on it was up $3,000 a month. Mm-hmm. So I would try to sandwich the lease to like 35 to 4,500 a month. Yep. And um, obviously when tenants don't pay, somebody has to cover the, the, the lease on the other end. And that yep. was me. Okay. Yeah. And so what, what happened at that point? Like when some of them went bust, did you just walk away from them or how, how does that process work with the lease option? Oh yeah, definitely. I actually spoke to the owners and I did walk away from them. So yeah. it was easier like that. I said, I couldn't do it anymore just because it wasn't working now on my end. I wasn't really specific, but they gave me the out that I needed okay. instead of you know losing more money. Cool. So that's kind of how you started. That was in 2010. And how has everything kind of evolved since then? Oh, okay. So basically I jumped into wholesaling and some flips in 2010. Mm-hmm. Just because uh, originally by trade, I'm a civil engineer and I went into building you know, very nice, some types of skyscrapers and stadiums in Manhattan because mm-hmm. I worked for a big contractor there at the time. Yeah, and uh, I kind of felt that I had the skills necessary to do flips. Yeah, so I needed some extra cash. So what I started doing was wholesaling, and I fell into the Sean Terry's program. And before that, just trial and error through what I saw online, and I just jumped right in. Um, and the beautiful thing about it is, is it works. And uh, so I kept on going, started doing some more flips, and then. I read uh, Dave Lindahl's book, I think, um, Multifamily Millions, and I really wanted to do apartment complexes just for the equity and the, to create some type of, I don't know, legacy for me, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, trying to do apartments back then. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't... And what, what year was this now? I would say 2000, we're in 2017. Let's just call it 2013. I did a few apartments before that, mm-hmm. but that was just through a private investor. Yep. They were on the smaller scale, but I wanted a bigger scale. I wanted to just fly up, do the 100 units, 200 units. So I dove into Dave's program and um, I had you know, some issues on the front end, like um, let's just call it Dave, he... he preaches a, a holy trinity, which is a cap rate, a cash on cash return, and um, that coverage ratio of a certain amount. So yeah. I try to follow it to the T. Yeah. And I was never getting any uh, properties on the contract. Actually, I was being laughed at by brokers and sellers alike. And um, it was just very frustrating at first until I realized that, okay, once I... Um, get these properties on the contract under that model, then that's considered a home run, Mm -hmm. but it's not considered a single or a double or a triple. So I was like, okay, how could I get singles and doubles? How could I do that? So let me look into what I'm doing wrong. Okay. So I made a hundred offers on properties these, this past six months. What am I doing wrong? Only one of them got accepted. Mm -hmm. There has to be a better way to get, some properties on the contract so I could have a chance because that's what I really want. I just want a chance, if you know what I mean. Um, so basically, I started becoming more uh, competitive. I lowered these standards because eventually I would have to, you could, uh, the property itself 
could uh, appreciate and the rents could be raised to reach those certain terms. And I kind of figured that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started getting uh, deals or contracts from uh, these property owners or brokers or whoever had these listings. And they were pretty competitive. They were between, I don't know, 8 to 10% cash on cash return, year zero, year one. So that's a pretty good deal if I was investing in it 100%. So the model for Dave was, okay, now you got to bring those deals and uh, take it to an investor. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's just say I may I have five, con- five contracts under, under contract every month. I take it to investors and they laugh at me. They're like, Luis, what the hell is this? You're giving me a property that, yeah, it looks great on paper, 8%, 10%, but you want your cut too. You want to be a partner in this. So that means you're, I'm basically only making 4 6% uh, first year, second year, when I could do 8%, 10% on my own. Yep. You got to figure something out. And, now, and I got turned away plenty of times, very frustrated on that. Until I kind of fell into an investor on a smaller property with a 26-unit property. Mm-hmm. He's like, the numbers look great. 8% cash on cash return, but I don't want to partner with you. What do you yep. mean you don't want to partner with me? I found you the deal. Look, find me a deal that's good for us to partner, and I'll partner with you. But I still want this deal. What do you mean you still want this deal? Give me that deal, and I'll pay you that acquisition fee. And I'm like... Oh, you could do that? Yeah, because acquisition fees are usually part of the uh, process of purchasing these apartment complexes through investors. Mm-hmm. So once he said, look, I'll just, uh, I'll just assign, assign me the contract or sell me the LLC, whatever you have to do, just give me the deal and I'll pay you that 2.5%, which it was at the time. And it worked out. So I'm like, wow, light bulb. Maybe I should start doing this to add some cash and into my pocket, and I continue to do it. So basically, I started uh, doing that process, and I realized that any property under 100 units, 80 units, it's very good, especially if the numbers work out. Mm-hmm. I could find investors and sell them the property with me collecting a fee. And uh, that was a turning point in the business. So eventually, I was able to save up to buy my own property and uh and i still go to all these events like multi-family events mm-hmm. and i feel that a lot of the investors there have the same issues that i have that they make constant offers on properties based on a certain criteria which they're not getting and then once they do get a property it's not the numbers aren't good you know it's a typical wholesale mistake mm-hmm. Uh, so after speaking with a lot of people, I realized that, wow, a lot of people could benefit from making these little singles and doubles by the, until they find the home run deal. And that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to share with people. So you're talking about, you know, I mean, most of, uh, the, the work I've ever done personally has been in, you know, smaller residential stuff, single family, multifamily, four units, six units, um, what is the typical type of property that you're going after? So basically, right now, what I go after are properties that are anywhere from 20 to like 80 units, 100 units max, mm-hmm. just because it takes a lot longer to find investors for anything above 100 units. Mm-hmm. The 80 unit threshold, let's just call it, is under 
3.5 mil and an investor could easily leverage that if they have anywhere from 500 to a million dollars cash and are you talking, in the bank. Are you talking about numbers in the Raleigh market now? Uh, no, this is in general in the Southeast. Okay. Uh, but in the bigger cities, obviously right now, the numbers are a little tighter. So mm-hmm. wholesaling these properties at a little tighter margin is pretty beneficial just because mm-hmm. you really can jump in on a deal right now, mm-hmm. especially in our market. Yep. Because there's no spread for anyone. There's not enough meat on the bone. So who is the typical seller? So, you know, somebody that has whatever, 20, 30, 40 units, is it just an individual person? Is it a group of people? Like who, who are you typically, you know, speaking with and how are you reaching out to them? Certainly, there's several ways to reach out to them. One of them is through marketing. And I usually send a couple letters or I just go to their uh, office if they have an office and I speak to them. And there's a, that's one way, which is just prospecting through through like a like a list that I have mm-hmm. of all the multifamilies in the area. That's just yeah. locally. Yeah. And what I do is I'll speak to them and some of them are looking to expand or buy a different property, buy a bigger property. So I help them move out of that property and into a new property. Mm-hmm. Um, those are one of the private sellers. A lot of the deals do come from, believe it or not, brokers. So if the numbers are good and the numbers make sense, I do make a lot of offers to listed properties. And that's another tactic to go ahead instead of searching for a certain property. I mean, you got to build some rapport with some of the brokers so they could send you these deals. But once that's done and you could close on them, they'll start, you know, the floodgates usually open and they'll talk to other brokers and you get more deals sent your way. So we're talking about listed properties. Um, you're talking about um, brokers sending you deals. Are you talking about properties that are already listed or properties that are about to hit the market and then you get a first look at? Both. A lot of times, like once you reach some type of rapport with these brokers, you close on a couple of deals, mm-hmm. they'll call you first or you're one of the top five people they called so they can make a, a quick sale. Okay. So you get one of these calls. And so today, are you typically trying to wholesale these or are you buying some? And what's the determining factor between whether you wholesale it or you hold, hold on to it yourself? Well, the determining factor is really the numbers. So if I see that a property, okay, the owner wants to sell it and the cash on cash return is 6% mm-hmm. or 7% or 8%, I know I'm not going to jump in on that. Mm-hmm. I know I'm better off calling a couple of investors that I know that are looking for multifamilies mm-hmm. and just assigning them the deal, you know, once I have another contract. So that's typically the case. So essentially you're, you know, you're cherry picking the best ones for yourself. Those are the ones that you're putting into your rental property portfolio on the ones that you're wholesaling where the, the numbers aren't quite as good. What can you make on a margin on the wholesale fee on average? On the wholesale fee is anywhere from one. I, I'm, I don't be, I'm not selfish so to speak, but it's from one to 3%. So if it's a repeat guy, you know, one and a half percent is pretty good. So let's just say a $2 million deal. 1% of that is 20 grand. If it's 2% is 40 grand. So mm-hmm. if you do one to three deals a year in this, you could actually make, you know, average salary of a person in the United States. Makes sense. Um, so you talked about, you know, listed properties. You're making offers on listed properties. You're getting first looks at deals from agents. 
and then you are proactively marketing. What would you say the ratio of like the deals, all the deals that you did in 2017, what percentage came from properties that were already listed that you were making offers on, which came from first looks before they hit the MLS and then proactively marketing? Proactively marketing, I think it's 15% because a lot of owners, they feel that the values are only increasing. So why sell now when they can wait another year or two and sell it then? Yeah, so they're not looking for anything else right now. They're comfy. They're comfortable where they are. Yeah, so I'd say eighty percent, eighty-five percent. Well, from seventy-five to eighty-five percent are first looks or listed properties. Yep. Okay. So, and then between listed properties and first looks, what would you put? Say that it's eighty percent total. Um, what percentages of, of it comes from listed properties versus for, first looks and agents? I, I would say sixty is first looks. Okay. And 40 is a list of properties that have been on the market only a couple of weeks. Cool. So I know, obviously, the properties that are listed, properties that everybody knows about, you've got to do that in bulk. You've got to make bulk offers in order to potentially get that accepted. What does your process look like in general for putting out offers? How do you calculate them? How do you work with the agents to get one of those offers accepted? Well, the typical process is you get the property and you underwrite it. So I have a, now I have an underwriter that I always send him the packages mm-hmm. or the brokers go directly to him with the emails. They'll mm-hmm. CC me and he underwrites it. And the person underwrites it based on certain criteria, you know, the typical uh, uh, gross income, effective gross income. They take off all the expenses and then there's certain numbers of spreadsheets fits out that will dictate my offer. And then mm-hmm. typically I'll write an LOI. A letter of intent to mm-hmm. the broker with the offer, and some mm-hmm. of them get rejected, or or they'll send their comments, and I either re send them an offer, or or I'll just pass on it. It just really depends. And so, on average today, so essentially, all the valuation, all of the valuation, and the offers are handled by somebody else. So you're you've got that kind of mechanism working for you. The offers made, what percentage of the offers that you submit get accepted? Uh, let's see. So about, I sent three, we sent three offers a week, typically. So let's just call it 12, 15 offers a month, and about one to three of them get accepted, or at least um, the LOI gets approved. And then okay. during the due diligence process, if we either move on from that property or or continue to work to hopefully close with an investor or ourselves. Okay. So again, me not really having a ton of commercial experience, it sounds like for all of these, there's there's a good amount of period of time between your offer, basically the letter of intent getting accepted and actually having to decide on a deal, right? Yeah. Typically once they accept the letter of intent, it's a week, five days to a week to uh, start the contract or get the contract uh, approved. Yeah, and once I get approved, I mean, I once I usually get an LOI approved, I already start calling all the investors I know, mm-hmm. and especially for those markets, the Raleigh Durham market. I'm, I have tons of investors that are interested in multifamily, and then other markets. I just have to kind of pick and choose which investors would love to go there or not, or are already there. So, when you're writing up your offers, you're basing it almost probably on what you know your investors will pay. Is that correct? 
Uh, well, basically, I always off, I always write the offers based on leveraged offers. So I know basically if an investor has to come in with 400K, I know which investors to target. Mm-hmm. And uh, the contract is written up basically that we're going to leverage 70% of the uh, sale price and the rest is uh, the investor or the group coming in with the difference. Okay. And that's their investment typically. And I typically calculate the values on their investment. Okay. So you you make an offer that's listed on the MLS um, based on the number that your underwriter is giving you that works for you. You get the property tied up. You're reaching out to the investors that you work with on, on those deals. Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincamerancoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. Tell us how you found those investors to begin with, because I think a lot of people are afraid, right? I mean, this is something I hear all the time. I'm worried, what happens if I get a deal? How am I going to sell it? So tell us how you made those contacts initially. Well, there's uh, many ways to make contacts. And that's, and that's something that every investor that wants to do anything, either wholesaling on a smaller scale to a larger scale, they have to go out and prospect mm-hmm. and find investors. So typically what's worked best for me is people that are in my circle that I already worked on several flips with or mm-hmm. they purchase properties, I'll usually go to them, especially locally. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do prospect a lot by going to these other events nationally, which are multifamily events, which they have tons of investors there that are still looking that they want to purchase property for themselves and haven't found the right one. So. Mm-hmm. I put in a lot of time into that, uh, about one event a month. And then every other day, I'm at high-end hotels prospecting with these people coming in at the bar mm-hmm. and talking to them what, uh, in regards to what I do. Because a lot of them, believe it or not, are very interested in real estate. So as long as you get, continue to get names every day from you know, the right sources, that's why I go to high-end hotels. Mm-hmm. Because it costs 400, 500 bucks a night to stay there, and not, not everybody's going to stay there. Mm-hmm. So I, I like prospecting that way, and it's fun. Cool. So, um, so you're making a bunch of offers, you get them accepted, you, you blast it out to your list. How frequently do you have to back out of a deal because you couldn't find an investor to, to, to come in and, and take over? Well, let's just call it I, 25%, and it's during the due diligence period. Yeah, uh, because there's a um, we discover a few things that were not let's just call it kosher, and they weren't what the seller was saying or what the broker was saying. So they were not. It's not that they were being dishonest. It's just it doesn't work out. Then after you inspect the property, there's a lot more deferred maintenance that needs to be taken care of, which increases the you know initial cash investment. So a lot of the times, if it's a lot of deferred maintenance or there's other problems that, you, that aren't set up front, that's when we back out. And yeah. the beautiful thing about the way I target is I target basically under 100 units, under 80, because those are easier to move than anything bigger. And it requires a less investment on the front end, especially fixing up 40 units as opposed to fixing up 180 units. So you're talking about, though, um, you know, backing out because there's an issue with the property. Do you, how often do you have to back out because you just can't find an investor for that deal? Um, 
I've backed out several times. Uh, I, the thing is, when I tar- when you target smaller properties and you target the right buyer, mm-hmm. I, it's not like I'm going to just one buyer. I'm going to five to ten buyers in certain area that have cash reserves that I know could purchase or previous buy you know, previous investors that are still calling me to this day to say, "Hey, I have five hundred k or a million. Please find me a property ASAP." So I'll go to them first. If they back out because they can't financially close, then I do have to back out. And that's about, uh, the close rate is basically around, yeah, 50%, 60% close. And the other 40 doesn't close because of a number of things. Mm. Deferred maintenance and the actual buyer backs out. So mm. the beautiful thing is, you know, I require these buyers to put in the earnest money deposit for these properties so that I am not liable. You know, any, any, any of my cash reserves is not liable to their cash reserves. So when mm. I know they're serious is when they put in an earnest money deposit of like one or 2% of the property value. Makes so, sense. So that, oh. that gives me a good, um, that gives them a, that gives me a good faith that they're either going to close or if they don't close, it's just because of the property wasn't what they thought. And Okay, what about the ones that you hold on to? So say that one of these comes across your desk and the numbers are awesome and you want to hold on to it. Um, how are you going about structuring the financing, um, getting you know all that good stuff? Well, basically, because uh, I deal with these buyers and they find commercial loans through banks, mm-hmm. I keep a list of all the banks they use and their uh, mortgage brokers. So I kind of shop around with them. And I'm not talking about 100 unit properties. I'm talking right now at 20, just because the way I save money, I have other investments going on and a lot of marketing that I do. Yep. That I, I always save a certain amount. So I could buy one property every three months, but it's around 30 to 40 units. Okay. Because, yeah, yeah because the reserve, the, for a 30 unit property, it could be a million. And all you need is 200, 300K just to invest in that property. So for me, I'm a lot more pickier than for somebody else. So say for you, you hold on to it. Um, It requires, say, $200,000 of your own capital, right? Mm -hmm. Are you putting that money in just from like money you have in the bank? Or are you raising money somehow to gap fund on that $200,000? Well, some, some of it. If it's a 200K and I have it, it's for me. So I'll put it all in. Yep. Obviously, I'm a believer of other people's money. So in some cases, when just an investor comes along and they have 100K to invest, I'm like, okay, come with me on this property. But for the ones that I keep, I try to be in it 100% because that's how my goals are set out. I wholesale properties, I'll save up money, yep. and then I buy one for myself for the appreciation and cash flow. So. Say that you you put in that 200k of your own money. Um, how does the commercial world work? Like, I mean, for on the residential side, typically I'll buy something, I'll renovate it, I'll get it fully rented, and then a year later I can pull my money back out. Mm-hmm. Do you try to get your money back out of those? And is is it the same type of deal, or is it harder to get your money back out on the commercial side? Uh, what have you done strategically on that? Strategically, there's uh, it depends on the cash on cash return. So what I do, it depends on the property too. If I could add any value to it, it's the most important thing there. 
-hmm. That's why I try not to go to properties that are not value-add properties. They're, I mean, that are value-add properties, sorry. Okay. Because I could uh, increase the rents, fix it up a bit, increase the rents, and then reach a certain, a new threshold where after six months to a year, I could refinance my loan. Okay. And once I refinance that loan, almost like a cash out refi, the, I could get part of my cash back. Yep. And once I get part of my cash back, uh, I reduce my risk. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I target. And when you target that, eventually you could reduce your cash risk to the point that it's zero. Yep. And that means it's infinite returns on your end. And that's usually the goal, but it takes some time. It's not you know, a month or two. It's typically six months to almost two years, just because you have to do renovations and whatnot. And how are you managing the units that you own? Uh, I, I get managers for each property. Once, like, so it's not one company that manages all of them? or It depends on the property. I'm not going to put in a, a C manager in a B property. Yep. I'm going to put in a B manager in a B property because they know how to manage it to those standards. Mm. So it, it really just depends on that. And to circle back on commercial loans, I believe they're easier to get than uh, single family up to four family, four unit loans, just because the lenders themselves, they look more at the property than at the individual. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. As long as you have some a good credit and you have some uh, cash reserves, they usually don't look don't, don't look deeper and they look more into the property. So as long as the numbers make sense for them, I've never really had a problem. So uh, do you ever, you started out doing some residential stuff. Have you ever looked back or are you going to be commercial forever in your, in your opinion? Oh no. I, I mean, I still, you still have, I still have to do the flips just because there's so many investors out there that are scared of multifamily Yeah. that in order for them to start trusting you more, you have to do their flips. You have to help them invest their money in a local flip or a two unit property and, and other similar properties. Mm-hmm. So if I help an investor make a good return on a nice flip that we're doing, then the next, it'll be a lot easier for me to convince that gentleman or lady to invest in a bigger unit so they can get some return off that. Mm. So it just depends on the investor, really. Mm. Makes sense. Um, so if you were to start, start over again, would you, would you hit any residential stuff or would you just go right into commercial? Oh, I would definitely hit residential stuff. I mean, it's how, you, how I got started. I mean, I still like doing flips. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a team in place that markets, because we still wholesale a lot of properties locally. I mean, we do about 70 a year. Wholesaling-wise, single-family. Residential, yes. Okay. So, I mean, why stop that um, source of income and use that to fund the multifamilies as well? I mean, it's just another step in... I think the wholesaling apartments is just another tool in your toolkit. Okay. what I think. Yes. Yeah. I, I guess that wasn't my impression based on, you know, cause we all, we just talked all about commercial. I wasn't aware that you had that much residential going on. So um, on the residential side, you're wholesaling somewhere around 70 uh, deals a year. What is, what are your lead generation sources that are working for you right now on that side? Uh, lead generate. It's just direct mail. I don't like Google AdWords for me. It's, it, it's never worked in this yep. area. Facebook, I'm doing a little bit more Facebook, but that's more to find investors Mm -hmm. locally. Um, 
I do a lot of wholetailing so I could get more investors into my pipeline. And uh, for the most part, it's just yellow letters. I have a team. Well, I have a person that it does about 2,000 letters a week for me, very personalized. Mm-hmm. And they, and then I send those out along with postcard. Mm-hmm. But the postcard re, uh, rate of return is a little disappointing, especially in a tighter market. So I just stick to the yellow letters for the most part. That's yeah. about 75% of my uh, direct marketing right now. Cool. And so who's going out on those appointments? Are you the one that's still doing it or do you have somebody else doing that for you? I have two guys that are my acquisitions managers. Yeah. So the beautiful thing about that, I have a team. I have a acquisition, well, a virtual assistant that answers all the calls. And she takes, she has a questionnaire and she speaks to them and builds rapport with them. And then we schedule the, the acquisition managers to go out during the week and on the weekends to get these properties on the contract. And then we just shoot them out. She gets the contract. She does the MailChimp ad. We shoot it out to the investors and uh, get some calls. And for the most part, lately, we've been putting it on the market too, mm. the MLS. Yeah, that helps. That a lot too. It helps bring in a lot more, let's just call it investors, even if they're through realtors. So yep. It does help a lot. So it sounds like you've got a lot going on. So you've got your you've got your wholesale you've got your commercial wholesaling business, you've got your residential wholesaling business, you've got your commercial acquisitions. Anything else that you're doing or well, I just recently uh purchased a bar in Raleigh. So oh, come fun. on. Yeah, why not? I mean yeah. it's another way to prospect, right? Yeah. I keep on thinking about prospecting all the time. I guess. I feel, I mean, you know, I've never owned a restaurant or a bar or anything like that. I feel like that would be a big headache. And I could be wrong because, again, I'm just speaking from what my intuition tells me. But um, I don't know. Are you? I'm assuming you have someone that's running that, right? Yeah, we have somebody that's running that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to run a bar. I've been in that service industry growing up. Never want to run anything like that. So what, what's the motivation for that, though? I mean, do you think that will be a moneymaker? Is it kind of a fun thing that you want to do? Like, what's the, what's the goal with that? Oh, the goal with that is, uh, I don't know about a moneymaker. It's just something to be proud of, I guess, something yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah. But also I have a, because it's more of a higher end place. Yeah. Why not speak to the people there when I'm there and try to network some more? Okay. So it's kind of a networking play for you. That's right. I mean, awesome. why not? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a unique strategy. I like it. Um, so what advice would you give? Because a lot of the people who are on here has, have never done their first deal before. I mean, what's the biggest, what's the best piece of advice you could give somebody like on day one? Oh, day one. Just just don't give up. I mean, I mean, I remember my first deal, it took me like six months. Yep. And Same was, here. I was still at it. And then I got another deal the next month. And they were pretty good deals. I think one, my first deal was 32000 in New Jersey, yep. which was phenomenal. And then my next deal was like seventeen, mm-hmm. And then it took me a year and a half to get another wholesale. So it's just, you got to keep on at it. You, you got to continue to market, talk to people. If you want, I think maybe I should have spoken to more investors on the front end that we're also wholesalers mm-hmm. and try to work with them a little bit more 
Did just you, so you could get, get mentored by anybody? I know you mentioned um, Dave Lindahl a little bit on the. Oh no, you mentioned uh, Sean Terry. Yeah, yeah. And did you so, go like? Was it a full coaching program with him, or did you just buy into some system? Like, what did you take from him? I did the buy-in system of his uh, academy online, yeah. And I just, you know, like you have to educate yourself. So I think that's a extremely important. So if you want to start this, the more you educate yourself, the more confident you get. Mm. Even if you're not even doing any deals. I mean, I remember not doing any deals, but felt so confident walking through the door because I practiced my uh, my answering objections. I I realized what I needed to do. I I was very coy and respectful and building rapport. So they felt that I was knowing that I knew what what I was doing, even though yeah. like I was very new in the industry. So yeah. it's, it's just a matter of educating yourself and just continue pushing and yeah. to market because if you don't market, you're dead. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever, uh, have you seen anybody that has done like low cost marketing that's worked well, or have you ever done any low cost marketing that's worked well? I mean, the low cost marketing, I would say the, I mean, I'm not a big fan of bandit signs. I've tried it. It really hasn't worked for me. I say for the person that has time. Yep. That's what I'm saying. Somebody, cause, cause everyone's in a different situation. You're talking about mailing. I do a ton of mailing. I, I do a lot of online stuff, but what about the person that, that doesn't have a lot of money, but they're willing to put in effort? Okay. So I, I think the best way for them is either if they have the time is uh, two strategies. One print out a whole bunch of um, door hangers. You could do it with your, like that thicker stock paper. Yeah. Could be yellow or anything and just say, Hey, I'm looking for, I'm interested in buying a house. Are you looking to sell? That's even even better than a mailer. I think so. It's worked so much better than mailers because let's just say one month you're like, okay, I'm going to print out 10,000 of these. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do, well, maybe not 10,000, but let's just say you start with a, a 3,000 door goal. Yep. So that's a hundred a day. Yep. A hundred a day, you could do it in two hours walking if you don't have anybody else doing it. Yeah. So if you do that two hours a day, and even though it says, because my uh, door hangers, I still do it but through a professional company. The old door handers were, if you're interested in selling property, please give me a call. Mm-hmm. However, if you don't, if you aren't, but you know somebody that's willing to entertain selling their property, I'll refer you up to two thousand dollars. I'll, yeah. I'll give you a, uh, like a a fee of up to two thousand dollars for helping me out. Yeah, I hear a lot of people say door knocking, and I think door knocking I know works well, but I think a lot of people are a little bit fearful of it. So the door hangers would definitely alleviate that. I mean, the door hangers are simple; they're better than a letter because someone could open their mail and maybe they missed your letter, but they're not going to miss your door hanger. I mean, that's a hundred. Exactly. There's no way they got to get in their house and your, your door hanger is in front of them. So that's definitely a great one. I um, mean, I remember, sorry to cut you off, but I remember yeah. like going on appointments and it was a door hanger situation and they're showing me their pile of direct mail. Yes. I'm like, wow, you, you got like 40 letters there or 40 letters and postcards. But yeah, you called my door hanger. Well, yeah, because you're the only one that might give me a fee for referring my cousin who's looking to sell their house. I'm like, mm. oh, perfect. Yeah. So I, at least they look at it. 
because they have to go through their front door. Mm-hmm. Through if something's in the mail, they could easily just throw it out if yeah. they wanted to. Cool. And like you mentioned, I think what the other, you know, huge thing besides marketing, because you need to market for an investor. The only way you can really get great deals is if they haven't hit the MLS yet. Um, so marketing is huge and, and not giving up. So I think a lot of people, they really want to get into this business. There's a huge learning curve in the beginning, which is why you need to always be educating yourself. And it just takes a lot of activation energy. So now you're doing 70 you're doing 70, you know, residential wholesale deals. And that wasn't even the primary thing we talked about today because you've gotten to that point and it just gets a lot easier. And I think a lot of people give up, you know, almost just before they're about to kind of crack, you know, crack it. So um, it's definitely worth it. I mean, I think it's one of the best, I think it's the best job in the world being a real estate investor. Um, And there's tons of money to be made and, just an awesome lifestyle. I mean, some of the stuff that you've talked about that you've been able to do traveling and, and just, you know, um, kind of living your life the way you want to. So, um, any, any parting words for, for anyone? Well, uh, just basically don't give up. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how many times I felt like giving up. I mean, I still have those doubts yep. and I'm doing a lot better than I was years ago, but don't give up. Even, even if you, I believe, even if you do enough to replace your monthly income or yearly income at a job, I think you should just consider it because uh, your family and freedom is more important than staying stuck in a job. Definitely. So if our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way to, to contact you? Oh, they could call me or text me at my cell phone, which is uh, 973-902-7203. Uh, they could find me on Facebook at IP Group NC, or they could email me personally at Innovative Holding at Gmail. Cool. So you won't get rid of the New Jersey phone number? Nope. I mean, I have so many contacts through there. And yeah, yeah. it looks, I mean, when I speak to investors in the tri state area or when I'm up there, yep. uh, like this weekend, um, I like visiting them and they like seeing that I'm from the area. And then, even when I'm down here, they see a 973 number. They're like, oh, look, another Yankee's taking over. Yeah. So I'm like, thanks. Awesome. Well, I want to uh, thank you today for joining us and giving all your wisdom. And I know the listeners definitely appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor. And especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.